0: What is going on Bible Stormers? Welcome back to the Bible Storming Podcast. This is your host, Daniel Webster, and we're back in this episode talking about honor and shame and the difference between cultures that really orient themselves around an honor and dishonor dynamic, honor and shame dynamic versus cultures like ours. If you, like me, live in the West in the United States, which really orient around a guilt and innocence dynamic. We talked last time about that. We talked about how here in the west, we we tend to rely more on an internalized conviction of sin like inside we're supposed to feel something about our sin and a lot of that really goes back to the fact that independence is is really a high value for us even from an early age we we're supposed to admire people who make it on their own we we view it as a good thing to be independent including in how our behavior is motivated like we respect people who stand up for what is right even if nobody else is going to know about it, right? That's that's a value in our culture. For us, we struggle with guilty consciences because our moral battles are oftentimes fought on the inside. And Remember like we said last time, this is not like a black and white thing. There's a lot of nuance here. There's a lot of gray area. It's not like our culture is only guilt based and and other cr- cultures are only shame based. But our, ours tends to lean more toward the guilt. And what we're going to talk about in this episode is that Eastern cultures, primarily and especially notable for us, is that Jesus's culture, the culture of the first century Mediterranean world, really was f- focused and oriented around this shame-based dynamic. And and, in trying to wrap our heads around a a dynamic that really affects so many things in life, but is invisible to us if we don't acknowledge it and try to think through it, there's this well-known Japanese proverb that says, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. So we have phrases like different strokes for different folks. Please, if you say that, please stop saying that. But but that is a phrase that people say. Uh, We have phrases like follow your heart, right? That's a really big one. We have phrases like those that value independence, that value going after your own standard of morality. But this proverb says that the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. So instead of independence, interdependence is more highly valued in many Eastern cultures and more shame-based cultures. They emphasize relying on each other, trying not to cause problems for the community as a whole. So really in those communities, they rely on external punishments for bad behavior, not necessarily imprisonment or anything along those lines, although that's obviously there, just like in our culture. But when I say external punishments, I'm talking more about things like rejection and abandonment and exclusion and embarrassment, shame, right? But not just on an individual level, but on a more broad level, they really rely on those external punishments. So guilt is more about moral Right and wrong, while shame is more about lowering your status in the group. Okay. So when we talk about this, we're, we're, we're saying that actions here aren't mainly motivated by some inner drive, that, that this action is necessarily right or wrong. That's not really what motivates somebody in a, in a really heavily shame based culture. Really, what's, what's motivated, what, what, motiva- what motivates more is that they don't want to bring shame on themselves or their village, or their family, or their tribe, or their church, or their faith. That's what matters the most. The expectations of people who matter to you, especially your family. And, it, and it's not that they matter more than whether something is right or wrong. It's not that these people put their family and, or their culture's expectations above moral right and wrong. It's more so that right and wrong is determined by those people's expectations. So you do wrong, not, not by breaking some internal law or doing something that causes inner guilt, but by letting down your community. And the reverse of that is also true. You gain honor by lining up with your community's essential values. Like in a lot of our culture here in America, you gain honor by being a trendsetter, right? You gain respect by setting trends that other people want to follow and in a lot of ways, that's completely antithetical to a shame and honor-based culture where you don't, like, like the proverb said, the, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. You don't want to be that nail sticking up because you're going to get hammered down by your community. So when you line up with your community, you gain honor. You do wrong according to your community and you become shamed. So this this goes so far that in a shame culture, from from what I've heard, and if you're if you're someone who is from a shame-based culture and you want to speak into this, please contact me. I'd love to discuss this with you and gain knowledge for myself and gain experience with each other. But anyway, from what I've heard, read this goes so far that in a shame-based culture, if if you, someone commits a quote-unquote sin, he probably won't feel guilty about it if no one else knows. Now, think about how radical that is to us Americans. We struggle with feeling guilt on the inside, right? That, that's, that's the thing that we fear the most when it comes to doing something wrong. It's like this, uh, it's like in Lord of the Rings, where, you have, where the, the whole goal is to get this ring that was the idea, the idea behind it is that it is the temptation that no one can resist because it makes its wearer invisible. So with, with this ring on, you can do whatever you want to anyone else. To, you can do whatever you want without anyone else knowing. That's the, that's the temptation of this ring. and it's The, the temptation is so strong because the inner code is not what caused those people, like in, the, in that movie, and there's, the movie actually is based on this ancient myth, but anyway, the, the temptation for that is so strong because they're not worried about some inner code causing them to feel guilty about doing something wrong. They're more worried about the outer sanctions. I was talking to a friend of mine who spent about a decade in Japan as a missionary. And I was talking to him recently about this concept of honor and shame. And Japan is known largely as a shame-based culture, more so than a guilt-based culture. And he was saying that this, this was a real struggle for him. In his time in Japan, and he's hoping to go back soon. So he's, he's been thinking through this. It's it's hard to communicate to Japanese people in some in some cases at least the concept of some kind of legal view of sin, which obviously is part of the view of sin that the Bible presents to us. Because he says that for for them this is this is real, where they can do something that we might consider it to be incredibly wrong, but if nobody knows about it, if nobody in their community or family is shaming them for it, like some kind of uh, objective shame upon them for it, then they just don't see why it's wrong. <laughs> There's no conception of right or wrong. It, it seems so weird to me as someone who's grown up uh, in this guilt type culture. Um, <laughs> it's it's just strange and confusing but the thing is that people who come from cultures like this think of us as just as confusing, right? We may tend to think of ourselves as holding some kind of moral high ground in this debate, and they may think of us as being insensitive. Like, so we can look at each other and we can cast stones at each other. But the point here is it isn't to determine which paradigm is better. We should appreciate all types of paradigms and try to adapt to each other. But the point for us is to point out the differences, to understand the differences between these types of cultures. Because like we've been saying, even though our society is guilt-based, the society in which the New Testament came into being was very much honor and shame based. So someone who was born into the first century Mediterranean world, whether they were Gentile or Jewish, didn't really matter in this case, they were trained from childhood to seek honor and to avoid Disgrace. If you look in ancient collections of advice, I was just looking in a few different ones, they would frequently label actions either with this positive label of noble or the negative one, disgraceful. So it wasn't necessarily right or wrong. Just for one example, if you want to look up Aristotle, his, his rhetoric. Where he labels it like this, where on the one column you have the noble actions, on the other column you have the disgraceful actions. So, disgrace, shame, what was a very powerful motivator, but something we haven't talked about as much so far is that honor was also an incredibly powerful motivator. Now, oftentimes, honor in these cultures, especially as we focus on the first century Mediterranean culture, Oftentimes honor was attached to your birth family or to your family name. if you had an important office, it was attached to that, or your physical prowess, if you were built you know as if you were a strong, mighty warrior, uh, or if you had military achievements, those, those statuses, those places in, in society, had some honor attached to them for sure. But the most common way to gain honor was simply by besting the people around you in the everyday game of life. <laughs> Every day was, was, as it were, scholars have referred to it as a game of honor. Now, we, we call it a game, but it really was incredibly serious. And really many men, if just bringing this to our culture for a second, if you think about it, many men, especially seem to follow the same pattern here today, or at least a similar one where every time we interact with each other, it's all about gaining dominance as it were over the other men in the group. It's about who can be the cleverest, who could be the funniest, the strongest, who can tell the best story. Like if you tell a story about how you caught a fish that was 14 inches long and, and took you an hour to catch, I need to share about a fish that I caught that was 23 inches long and took me four hours to reel in, right? Like We have to one-up each other. It just seems like that's that's a male instinct. And really, guys, that, that's pride talking. That's something we need to get over. But that pattern, I think, can help us relate to this, this everyday game of honor. But like I said, th- this game was so serious for them that if the honor of your name or your family was offended, everyone accepted, this, this is just commonplace, everyone accepted that that honor could be restored only through the shedding of blood. (laughs) That's crazy to us, but that's how serious honor is taken. And if you Google honor killings, I mean, be prepared to go down a rabbit hole the internet and and really, it really is not going to uh, encourage you. It's not gonna be a fun rabbit hole to go down because this still happens today. It happens even, it has happened in the US and it happens in many cultures even today. And throughout history, there've been thousands and thousands of honor killings. This is a serious thing. Now you can see this type of honor and shame thinking all over the New Testament. Like if you if you just want to search your Bible program for this, you'll see it everywhere. But just for a few examples, John 12, verse 26, Jesus says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now notice that that, that's an interesting little dynamic that's going on for Jesus here. Because generally, a servant, someone who's serving, is not necessarily a place of great honor, right? in that society especially, you could gain honor by being a good servant, by do, doing your job well. Now that's a way to gain honor. But but just in and of itself, being a servant is, is not a very honorable position. But Jesus says, if you serve me, my Father will honor you. There's a type of honor that comes from God that supersedes the honor of society. It's really interesting. And also in Philippians 2, 29 and 30, for a more example, Paul says, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ. Now you notice how that little phrase there in the middle, and honor such men, I almost pass over it if I'm not thinking about it. Because honor is, is not really a huge thing for us, but for them, Paul says, this guy nearly died for our cause. So give him some honor. He has earned this honor. Give it to him. (laughs) Lavish him with honor. one last one, and this one's a little different, but I think it'll help us understand something about these dynamics. 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul, Paul writes, So glorify God in your body. Now, glorify, that, to us, that is a bit of an abstract concept because we don't use that language very often in places other than church, right? <laughs> glorify, glory, any of those type words. But if you want it's, to, it's a bit reductionistic, it's a bit too overly simplistic. But if you want a pretty solid way of thinking of glorifying something else, think of honoring that thing. Because even though our culture isn't an honor based culture, not a shame based culture, honor. Really is still a part of our culture, right? We understand putting honor on something or honoring somebody who's who's earned it or even somebody who hasn't earned it and giving them the honor that they maybe don't deserve. we We understand that a little bit more than glory, I think. So you might can put this in into this text, other texts that talk about glorifying God. So honor God in your body. Honor him with how you live your life because your body's not not yours anymore, right? And and really, if you look for this, if you begin to read the New Testament through these glasses, you'll see these dynamics absolutely everywhere. You'll see the honor and shame dynamics just on every page, just about. For one example, Philippians two five and 11, uh, five through eleven is this classic, amazing, stunningly beautiful text, right? About how Jesus becomes a servant; he empties himself for our sake. But what's interesting there is that. Paul seems to turn the honor dynamics on their own heads because for Jesus, he gains honor, right? That's, that's verses 9 through 11 there. He gains honor by emptying himself, by becoming shameful, as it were, by shaming himself, he gains honor. These are the upside-down dynamics of the gospel, and you see this all over the New Testament. One more example of honor and shame is Luke chapter 14. It's really all over this chapter, but there's especially a parable here where it talks about how if you take the, the primary seats, the seats of honor at a feast, imagine how embarrassing, how shameful it is when somebody more important than you comes in and you get debunked from those seats. And Jesus is giving advice. He's like, look, instead of doing that, uh, maybe just take the lower seats and let that person exalt you at the, at the table. So he's, he's giving you really some practical advice for that culture, but then he's taking that practical advice that might get people saying, huh, you know, that's a, that's a good idea, Jesus. That's going to help me save my own skin. He's taking that practical advice and saying, look, God is kind of like that, except you don't have to take your chances with God. If you really do lower yourself, if you shame yourself, as it were, God will honor you. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He will be honored. So like I said, this is all over the New Testament. And one other interesting point along these lines is that for the the new Christian communities that are coming into being in the first century, let's get into their minds for a little bit. Let's think about how they lived in this honor-shame culture and think about how their new Christian communities might have banded together around this Because they were going through some serious persecution in this sense, okay? So the society around these new Christians are pushing back against them. And at the time of the New Testament, most of the persecution that they were enduring was informal. It wasn't like empire-wide. It was more informal insults and harassments and shaming of Christians. One example uh, in the text is First Peter four verse four, which says that they are surprised that you don't run with that you don't join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. They heap abuse on you because they're surprised. So these were that society's attempts to draw these believers back into a life in line with the traditional values of that culture. They're trying to shame them. This is just how that society worked. They're shamed, or at least trying to shame these people back into life that's in line with how their culture is supposed to function right? So maybe you have been going to the Zeus Festival every August for the last 22 years with all your buddies. It's it's something you look forward to every year. It's a great time. But in between the last Zeus Festival and this Zeus Festival, maybe you converted to Christianity. You're now a disciple of Jesus. And you've decided that you can't participate in that Zeus festival anymore. But here comes August and here come your buddies and they're so excited, they're planning. And you say, guys, man, you know I'd love to, uh, but because of of my faith, I can't do that anymore with you guys. And they start to mock you and (laughs) talk about how you're too good for them now and stuff like that. They're trying to shame you in this hypothetical situation into living a life that's more in line with the values of that culture. That's how this would work, especially at the beginning. This was the persecution that many of the the early Christians endured. But here's the question. How were they supposed to respond? How were they supposed to respond? How were they supposed to respond when they are counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name? Acts 5 and verse 41. How are they supposed to respond when they see other people who love the glory that comes from man, the honor that comes from man, more than the honor that comes from God? John 12 and verse 43. How do they respond in the face of this? Well, just one example, Romans 8, verse 17. Paul talks about how we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In order that we may also be honored with him. So Paul says, look, just like Jesus emptied himself, he humbled himself, he shamed himself by coming down from heaven, taking the form of a servant, and being crucified, being humiliated, even to the point of death, taking on that shame. And because of that shame, direct not, not even just in spite of it, but directly because of it, God has given him this honor where every tongue confesses that he is Lord, and every knee bows before him in, in the same way, not to the same extent, but in the same way, Paul says that provided we suffer with him, provided we we suffer this shame and dishonor, humiliation of being his disciples, we will also be glorified with him. Now that, that's good news. That is a part of our gospel. That is a part of our reward that we have if we live faithful to Jesus here on earth. If we follow after him in his footsteps and endure the shame that maybe we've been avoiding as disciples of Jesus, but we can't do that any longer because we know that Jesus suffered shame for us so that we can be honored with him. So please go out and do that together with me this week. And until next time, keep on Bible storming. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on the Scattered Abroad Network. We are grateful for your continued support as well as your continued prayers. If you would like to find out more about our network, please visit our website at scatteredabroad.org. We look forward to studying with you again soon. May God bless you.